Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for February 2013. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, really hoping that I don't hear anything about the Oscars for the next 10 months or so, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hello everybody, I'm writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, I would be a visual effect, but Hollywood don't want to pay for me, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest... Uh, well, I am actress hyphen, writer hyphen, uh, emerging would-be director hyphen, mean cook, uh, Victoria Thane. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. i got to start with side effects because, as we've established, I'm a little obsessed with Soderbergh and this is his last theatrical film. He's still got it, the HBO um, Liberace film coming out. But Side Effects is his last theatrical release before his self-imposed retirement We'll see how long that lasts. Mm. Well, I'm going to start a, a campaign, an online campaign, to bring him back like tomorrow. <laughs> but um, but yeah, did you uh, did did you guys catch this or? I did see it. I, I said when we covered him for Hyphenates that he's never made a bad film, and I think with Side Effects he's maintained that record. It's the kind of classy craft and strong storytelling that we've become used to from him. It's just mm. it's it's a it's a little bit of a it's just kind of a little pot boiler. And it's so much fun. The cast, I mean, it's basically four main cast members and they're all terrific. Um, nice to see Jude Law playing very straight too because of late he's been kind of getting his Giovanni Ribisi on, you know, <laughs> weird accents and kind of strange makeup and things like that. And, yeah, and this is, he's very much a leading man. And um, and what's the movie? Because I I didn't catch it. Sure. So what, what's it actually it's, about? Uh, I don't want to say too much because there are a few twists and turns, but essentially uh, Rooney Mara is suffering depression. She's married to uh, Channing Tatum, who just got out of prison for insider trading. She's uh, finding it difficult. She's depressed. She starts taking this. She comes under the, uh, the, the care of Jude Law's psychiatrist character and starts taking this new drug that Jude Law's character is being paid to kind of treat, uh, to try on new patients. And she, something happens when she's on this drug. Right. And then there's all sorts of repercussions. I just thought it was very, very cool and very solid. I, mm. And um, Those are the words you think about with him. He's a very competent filmmaker. Um, even though I didn't see this film, I was thinking about him. And he, he's not like a filmmaker that I you know, would put in, like, my sort of top five filmmakers of all time, but, you know, you can rely on him. Mm. That's what I mean. I think there's yeah. very few film of his, films of his that I that go right over the top for me. But, like I said before, none of them are bad. Like, every single one of them is really, really solid and, yeah, and, and competent. Well, he's, he's always trying to reinvent himself, and I think, like, we were talking about with Contagion how, you know, he didn't want to do Traffic Part 2, and so... He completely changed his visual style and went for this totally new look. And I think Side Effects kind of lives in that world, that really controlled, you know, I'm not going to blow out all the colours, it's not going to be handheld, it's going to be this very, very... And for a thriller, that's a really, really good idea. And mm. there's some great stuff, in, like that. the way the opening and closing shots sort of mirror yes. one another. And, and very just, psycho too, did you notice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're coming in from the city and dollying into the window. Um, and I like that it wasn't a victory lap. It wasn't, no. this is the last Soderbergh film, and so James Spade is going to walk past and wink and go, no, no, no more sex lies and videotape, everyone. Like, it's totally ego-free. It's just, I'm just going to tell a good story, and that's it. That yeah. amazing. Yeah, now I'm kind of wishing I had been in there. I, yeah, it's kind of like he's just pulled the handbrake mid-drive mid and just gone, yep, mm, right here, this is fine. 
but yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was a cool little thriller. Yeah, me too. And lots of shots of people. I thought uh, thematic shots of people out of focus and then coming into clarity mm. as well, yep. which seemed to be quite a quite a theme going on, which I thought was rather nice. But one film that did feature James Spader coming in and winking at the camera. How's that for a segue? Lincoln. <laughs> The, the Spielberg, the, the long gestating Spielberg yeah. film about um, uh, George Washington. He's wanted to make this since the Civil War, hasn't he? Mm, pretty much. Seems that way. Uh, yeah, have you seen this one? Uh, no, again, I no? uh, have a long list of uh, current cinema to see. Slightly put off by the long running time, mm-hmm. but, I, you know, probably worth it to see Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, I am guessing. Yeah, Absolutely. He, he's pretty wonderful. Are, are you a fan of Angels in America? I never saw it. Oh, okay. I do well, actually, believe it or not, watch stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sceptical of this claim. I'm yet to see it backed up. Yeah, back it up, Thane. Come on. Yeah. I know um, you did get me on this show to actually have opinions about things I have watched, and I'm sure there's going to be something you name soon which I can offer will, something intelligent I promise about. we'll get to something like that very soon. But, uh, yeah, Angels in America, written by Tony Kushner, who wrote, um, the Lincoln script and for all the good things about Lincoln like it was you know Daniel Day-Lewis is fantastic and Spielberg's direction is great and the cinematography and all that I think what really pushes it over the edge for me is just the fantastic Kushner script which because he's such a good writer he navigates all of that sort of uh, parliamentary viscous you know wheelings and dealings that could have been so dry and so dull but I like it could have gone twice the length for me like I was really engaged by it See, I found this film maddening mm. uh, because I felt for everything I liked about it, it was quickly followed by something I didn't like and then it, that was followed by something I did like. But I think I liked more than I didn't like. It was kind of like every third scene was kind of really pompous and bloated and annoying. And the other two scenes were really... The couple of things you should know about the film. One, it's surprisingly funny. Some of the characterization and dialogue is quite hilarious and it's very... There's a sense of humour here and a humanisation of a gentle president and... The um, the focus on process, on political process, that really calls to mind, it's very much a post-West Wing movie. And look, I mean, some would argue that West Wing had its kind of pompous moments as well. And... No, it didn't. <laughs> but, um, but those were all after Sorkin. Um, That's right. But, but uh, yeah, it's very, it has that sort of Aaron Sorkin, West Wing sort of feel for the most part. And then, you know, with some Spielberg mixed in. You mentioned James Spader before. There's a wonderful subplot, subplot with um, Lincoln engages kind of a team of near-to-wells to kind of lobby congressmen into vote, votes for him. And they're James Spader, John Hawkes, and Tim Blake Nelson, and they're fantastic. Mm. And it's just one little sidebar of the film that really works well. Um, yeah, so it's this strange schizophrenic experience, like every Spielberg film of late, except for Tintin. It doesn't know when to stop. It's... Two, two and a quarter hours of great and then sort of this 20 minutes of why, why are we still here? So, yeah, there's as much worth seeing as probably, yeah, I, I'd say it's worth seeing. All right, Victoria, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here. Have you seen the Australian cricket film Save Your Legs? Um, amazing because you would not think that this is my demographic, but, yes, I have. I have seen it. It's a little tricky because I have close friends in the lead roles, Stephen Curry and Damon Gummo and Brendan Cowell, actually. Um, But uh, I I didn't think it was 
great. Um, look, if I was being honest, I thought it was pretty terrible. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you were being honest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, and I imagine, will try if, and <laughs> imagine if they weren't her friends. <laughs> and I will try and, uh, you know, be a little bit more constructive about why. But I, I think because the true story that it's um, actually based on, and I haven't, there was documentary, I believe, mm. um, which I haven't seen. Um, but was basically, you know, based on this sort of local cricket team who uh, managed to get themselves into this competition in India. And some really interesting, dramatic, dreadful things happened to mm. the uh, real people. I think one of them nearly died. Oh, really? Someone tried heroin. Oh. Uh, you know, actually really great dramatic stuff happened. What, no Bollywood dancing? <laughs> Maybe while he was taking heroin. Um, you know, I know that, you know, they were making a, a comedy. But, you know, you have all this great material and they sort of reduced it to uh, fart jokes mm. and and spew jokes. And oh, God. I, you know, I know they're going for a sort of male, you know, audience. So they're going for that sort of lowbrow comedy. But I still think you can do you know, that sort of comedy with a bit more intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but maybe I'm right. You know, I am so definitely not the audience for this. So perhaps you had a different experience, Lee. Well, yeah, a little bit. I Look, I didn't love it, but I thought the ratio of good joke to bad joke, it just it, for me, it kind of keeps its chin above water, which sounds really damning. But, you know, given the state of Australian comedies most of the time, I, that's that's a pretty good ratio. But, yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite slick and... I don't know. Aside from the ending, I think I think the ending is the big issue, because it, it sort of it promises you one thing and then doesn't deliver that, and then just sort of yeah has a Bollywood scene, you know, you know, and then and goes off in these weird directions. Uh, I, I I don't know. It's um yeah, it's not a good film, but it, it was closer than I thought it was going to be. But it is frustrating when you you see really talented actors and you you feel like they're a little bit wasted. You know mm. what heights that they could reach. But, you know, saying that maybe it'll be a huge commercial success. Yeah, could be. So we've got a, we've got a split decision here. We've got a clean bold uh, from Victoria <laughs> and a uh, leg before wicket maybe. Let's go to the third umpire from Lee Zachariah. Sorry I don't follow soccer. I have no idea what any of that means. <laughs> well, speaking of scripts, I've always felt that director Joe Wright is someone who is, like I've always loved his style, I think, you know, what he displayed in, in films like Atonement and Hannah. He really proved himself to be an amazing director, but I've always felt the scripts aren't quite there. I think that's one of the reasons I love Anna Karenina so much, because he's finally got a script that he can really just unleash on. Like This is Tom Stoppard's best screen work since 1990, since Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Wow. This is, yeah, this is the best work he's done, because I've always preferred his plays to his screen work, and even though Rosencrantz was a play that he adapted. But... He's just, he's absolutely nailed this and it's just one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. There's that crazy conceit of it all, high society being like always being on a, like the characters always feeling like they're on stage. Mm. So they're depicted as always being on a stage and there's a proscenium mm. and they're looking out to an invisible audience and all this sort of stuff. It's, and and that, that all sounds fascinating. And that thing of most of the, the characters being in that stage world and one or two of them being in the real world. They can actually leave the theatre and be oh, in the right. real world. It's right and stop at basically saying these people are genuine and everyone else is fake. Hmm. 
And it's it, it almost feels like that a cinematic equivalent of a literary device. They're not just trying to copy the 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 novel. They're trying to do their own thing, and it just I think it works perfectly. It's it, it really blends melodrama with magic realism in a way that. Remember we were talking about One Wonderful Sunday when we were going through mm. all of Kurosawa's films? That, in, in a way that we haven't seen since, you know, 1950-whatever. Yeah. Uh, it just does it absolutely brilliantly. And I really feel like this is revolutionary. It's a revolutionary film and it's doing something new with cinema. And it's not the only film this month that's doing that because Cloud Atlas has come out. Mmm. Now, you've been wanting to talk about this one for a little while. I've been itching since, like, <laughs> December. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is um, this is basically a perfect film, I think. Wow. I, I read the book having wow. no idea how they were going to adapt it because the book is this Russian nesting doll of, you know, six different stories across, you know, past, present, future uh, that do have connections and, and strong thematic connections and vague story connections. And I just could not imagine how it would be done on screen, which is why I was so excited to see it. And they don't use that device at all, which is probably the best thing they could have done. They, they throw out that device and make a film that is follows the book's lead and that it's about the interconnectedness of all things. It's mm. a very holistic uh, film, and it basically feels like a three-hour montage. It's just this sensory experience rather... You, you know how you know, a film will build and then they'll have the, the montage at the end. The exciting bit. This is three hours of that exciting bit of the film. Uh, right, a three-hour montage. That sort of sounds frightening. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah, I probably, <laughs> I probably shouldn't have sold yeah. it that way. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, there is something. It does slow down occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yep, it does. It takes its moments, but it, it has an energy that is that keeps you excited. There's not. Oh, okay, we're back to this scene. We're back to the 1800s scene, or we're back to the 1990s scene. Yeah. Look, I think. It, was far from perfect, but I, I really, I really dug it. And I think what you're kind of getting at there is how this film wasn't nominated for best film editing at the Oscars. Mm. I have no idea. This is one of the like considering you've got six timelines and characters reappearing in and out of, and and it does this great thing. It's kind of like there's an old film called The List of Adrian Messenger, which had which had all these megastars in massive makeup. You couldn't recognise them. It's got all of the, the nine main cast of Cloud Atlas play an average of six roles each throughout. So they're in other timelines, they're in other, and they're made up. They have different accents, they're different races, they're different genders. They're, it's it's really brave. But the thing I like about it is it's a massive, whopping, weird, Hail Mary pass of a film. And there's a lot about this film that shouldn't work. I think there's going to be people out there who think it, who who will find it doesn't work for them. And there's a part of me that almost is starts to agree with them, but I really went on the ride. It's um, it's really yeah. It, it's it's so fun to watch something go out on a limb and try something, and plus it's so nakedly sincere as well, which is mm. also really cool. It's really really hard on sleeve. We mean it, and I kind of love that. Mm. Um, look, and I look I, the, when I say I don't think it all works, I think. Some of the timelines are more interesting than others. I think, I think the uh, depths of Tom Hanks's range are challenged. Oh, I think, oh. I think he finds, I think he finds the edges. Does he play six characters, but actually he's just Tom Hanks in no, every single one? It's more like Tom. In some characters, he's completely, completely disappears. Other characters, it feels like 
it's Tom Hanks and a bunch of makeup trying really, really hard to put on an accent and not really, it's not really working for him. Um, some others really, I think, I think Hugh Grant works beautifully in, yeah. in his roles. Um, you wouldn't have thought that him as this tattooed tribal warrior would be convincing, and yet... He even looks bigger. He's scary as hell. He yeah. looks massive. I don't know what they did, but yeah. Um, and some of, the, like, I think some of the makeup is brilliant. I think some of the makeup is not so brilliant. Mm. There's old Hugh Grant at one point does look a bit like a melted candle, but but then some of it's quite stunning. Like, um, you know, there Hugo Weaving plays a woman at one point, um, mm. a, a nurse ratchet style ma- uh, matron, and is awesome. Yeah, I love completely him. <laughs> convincing. I, I need to watch it again because there's a lot of story going on in this mm. film too. There's a lot of story and worlds and detail being thrown at you and it's a lot to take in on first viewing and you kind of... I'm eager to have another look to see if there's any themes beneath the interconnectedness of all things and 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 the there's a theme of sort of emancipation in there as well. Everybody's trying to escape some kind of of slavery in some way or another. So, yeah, I'm eager to have a second viewing, but I, I really dug it. And I did like how he turned Keith David and Halle Berry into John Shaft and Pam Greer during the 1970s yeah. uh, plotline, too. I thought that was pretty damn cool. That was good. One film you probably have a lot to say about, we've finally got Michael Haneke's Amora. Interesting. Our number two films of last year both came out this oh, month. Oh, yeah. There you go. There's a thing. There you go, trivia uh, fans. Because mm, I know people are taking notes. <laughs> Amour is uh, the new film from Michael Haneke and deals uh, with mortality and and love in the face of, of such in the most honest way I've seen on screen. It's just the thing I love about this film, because I, I like Haneke as a filmmaker, but he's always been a little bit of a provocateur and very, very critical of the human race, um, which is something I, I quite value. You're a human race fan? Yes, yeah, I'm more a Michael Haneke fan. Oh, right. Um, yeah, and a lot, a lot of human race fans don't really sorry like Sorry to any humans who are listening right now. Um, yeah, sorry, you suck. It's just he's not playing with the audience. He's not being a provocateur here. I mean, it could be argued he does this in, some, in a lot of his other films too, but he's just kind of showing you matter-of-factly this couple who just who really, you know, who are in their 80s, they're devoted to one another, but in that sort of you know, very casual, lived-in type way, and then the wife starts developing Alzheimer's disease and the husband starts having to take care of her and, you know, they can't help but sort of watch her slow descent into... It sounds... Is it a more sort of conventional film than we're used to seeing from Yeah, look, when you say conventional... I I mean, mean, I know he's never going to be conventional, but, you know... For him. Yeah, it's less of a fucking with the audience type thing and more of a he's just telling a very straight narrative Mm. about this and it's more about people who love each other than people who are awful to each other, Mm. which is Haneke's usual kind of um, playground. It's so graceful and heartbreaking, but while hard to watch, also completely absorbing. But, yeah, I just think it's so beautifully elegant. It has the feel of a masterpiece. And I don't think it's too far away from one. I can't wait to see it. His films, really, you know, you always feel something in an extreme with his films. Like, I absolutely love Funny Games. Both. Yeah. Both versions, well, they're, you know, exactly the same, really. I hate, absolutely hate The Piano Teacher. Mm. Like, 
vehemently. <laughs> like, it makes me so angry, that film. Yeah. But he's, he's such an amazing filmmaker. You do, you know, he does provoke something, mm. you know, whether you, you come back for more or not. I was so bored during, um, you know, extreme <laughs> yeah. boredom through, um, what was one of the little boy? White Ribbon? Yeah, the White Ribbon. Yeah. No. No? No, didn't. See, I've always felt really distanced by his films, and I know sometimes that's the point. Uh, and I thought Amor would, would break that. I thought, you know, Amor would drag me in. And, but I felt distanced from this as well. And yet, I, I've said this before about films, I can't fault what I'm seeing on screen. I don't recognise what's happening on screen that, that is turning me off. And I think this, maybe there's something about his style that just deflects me. And I want to watch it more again. I, re- I know not many people who have seen it, even the ones who love it, say that. But I want to watch it again until I love it because I can, <laughs> I can see what people... <laughs> damn you. Yeah, <laughs> like, like Clockwork Orange style. Yeah. But um, I can see the film that people are talking about mm. when they say they love it. And I want to love this film, but it's just... Um, I don't know why. I just have this barrier with Haneke. Is it the coldness of his style? Is it the, the kind I, of, yeah. the, that kind of matter of fact? I think it is. Observational kind of tone? Yeah. I think it might be. Hmm. But yeah, it's probably not a date movie. I'll just put that out there. Okay. My 80-year-old girlfriend will be very disappointed. <laughs> uh, I, I now have a very frightening thing that I have to confess. Um, I don't want you to be too alarmed, but there was a day quite recently where I saw, on the one day, I saw Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, I saw The Sweeney, and I saw Movie 43. And of the three, Movie 43 was clearly, far and away, the best Wow. Uh, uh, what is Movie 43? Oh, okay. That's it's... exactly what the uh, promotional poster <laughs> said. There's no way I'm going to be able to uh, to adequately sum up both its awfulness and what succeeds about it, but it's basically a sketch comedy film with a whole bunch of A-listers in bit parts. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. No, I've, I've read bad things. <laughs> it, it's been called the worst things. film ever made. It's... Uh, even though most of it doesn't work. Like, I don't like the film at all, um, <laughs> but I can see them try. And there are legitimately funny sketch setups. Like, I mean, Hugh, Hugh Jackman and Kate Winslet go on a blind date, and Hugh Jackman's this amazing guy, and nobody can figure out why he's still single. And he takes off his scarf, and he has testicles hanging from his chin. And that's not especially funny, but what's funny is Kate Winslet on this, on this date, who can't mention them, can't bring it up, can't say, you know, say anything about it and no one else notices them or no one else reacts to them. Is there partly an amusement factor of the fact that this is Kate Winslet and Hugh Jackman playing this scene? That is a small factor, but I, th- I think because that's a legitimately uh, awkward situation. Like, that is a legitimate sketch setup. Yep. And there are a few like that. There are, there are some that just do not work at all start to finish. But there are enough times where they try and they, they, have an, they know what they're doing that I will say that anyone who says this is the worst film ever made has no idea what they're talking about it's not good it's really not good but it's not terrible either does she give him a neck job (laughs) (laughs) that's the only thing i've been able to think about the whole time you've been talking i've just had these visuals and i'm thinking wow so yeah where does that go how do you do that and just can we go out on that yeah we're going out on that (laughs) that's beautiful so for our uh middle section we're discussing an issue this month and it's around likable characters what do we mean when we say we find 
the characters likable in films or they're unlikable or because it's a big thing you know it's one of those big studio notes a lot of screenwriters and filmmakers get it's like oh they're not likable enough and they need to be more likable and and yet they can be written that way and then we'll see the film and not feel that way and and is it as much of writing on the back of an actor's charisma or is it something that's actually written or do we actually mean likable when we say likable what do you guys uh, I think likable is probably a bad word to use because there are a lot of unlikable characters that we still feel compelled to watch and still want to follow their story so I think it's more about relating to the character in some way, having some empathy for their situation. There's got to be an in, yeah. some sort of in to the character that actually makes you care about what happens to them. That's absolutely my point of view. Like, that's the thing. I really feel like when people say likeable, what they mean is relatable. Mm. Like, it's that, it's that way and it's like, even if you can't relate to someone trying to blow up a building or whatever you need to recognise some shred of reality within them, some shred mm. of feeling, some shred of an emotion you felt. Or Four lines is a good example. Four terrorists, people we're, you know, in our culture we're conditioned to hate and yet you, you kind of you see their point of view in a sense or you see their home life mm. and, and you do find yourself drawn to them, uh, which is why yeah, I agree with that completely. I think that when people say likeable, they mean two different things. And they don't quite know which one they mean. So I didn't like any character in This Is 40, whereas I like every character in Goodfellas. Mm. Now, I can tell you which ones I'd rather hang out with. You know, like <laughs> gun to my head, quite literally, I, you know, would, yeah, would be the characters probably. from This Is 40 because mobster's not my thing. But watching a film, <laughs> I'd, rather watch good, I'd rather watch Apocalypse Now. And, you know, they're all fairly, you know, extreme characters. So mm. I... I, I yeah, I really think there are two types, uh, two things we mean when we say likable. And what we really mean is do we enjoy, as you say, spending that time watching them for two hours? And I think, do you think there's times when the, the charisma of the star is an impact? Like, because I was discussing this uh, with, with my partner and, and she's bringing up villain, like Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining mm. or. Um, Hannibal Lecter or Kevin Spacey in Seven, you know, or whatever. Like, and whether it's recognizing that humanity or actually just there's something powerful about that performance that's just. I think obvious. I think obviously the charisma of an actor is going to add something, and the natural energy that an actor has comes across on screen. But I don't think that is ever necessarily enough. Like, it's got to be there in the mm. script. There's got mm. to be something else. I don't think it can carry that alone. So, so we, if we feel that char- characters in a film aren't likeable, is that a problem for the film or is that us not being clear enough about what it is we have a problem with? It's, it's a problem with the film if the film is setting someone up to be likeable and they're not. Mm. Like, then that's a disconnect. Like, if you've got a romantic comedy with, you know, two people we're meant to love and these lovable, like, this is 40, you know, it's mm. like this is meant to be a lovable family. You Through them we see us and it's like, no, 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 this isn't, <laughs> you know, I'm just echoing your point of view here because I haven't seen sure. the film. Don't kill me, Judd. That is an issue. But then if, you know, if, if it's they're writing a character who's amoral or who's, you know, not likeable in that sense and the audience doesn't go with it because, oh, that person does things I don't like or whatever, then I think it 
is more of a problem with the audience than because the audience aren't meeting the film halfway. It's interesting that this is generally a problem for uh, fiction films, but I watched the documentary Metallica, some kind of monster with a bunch of people and realized that I had a whole completely different reaction to everyone else. Cause I thought it was a sad ending that they got all what they wanted. I <laughs> found them such whiny, childish, just horrible people that, I, 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 without really thinking about it, I realised that the ending I thought they deserved is that everything gets taken away from them and they learn some sort of lesson. But of course, forgetting that it's a documentary and that's not how real life works. And uh, But yeah, that was certainly my reaction to it, which the people I was watching it with did not have that reaction. I was trying to think, I was thinking about this today and trying to think of films where, you know, I, I weren't successful in making us care about the characters and... I was thinking about um, Sleeping Beauty, the Australian film. Mm. The main problem for me with that film was that we were supposed to care about um, the lead character, and but we were never. There were, there were a couple of scenes where it appeared obvious that oh, these are the scenes where we're supposed to feel something, where we're supposed to, um, you know get it into her but there wasn't enough foundation mm. to those scenes and I and because of that because I didn't feel, feel like I had something to hook on to I just became incredibly bored and I, and I think it's such mm. a danger it is I, you know and it's an important note for filmmakers to get because it, you just switch off as an audience member if mm. you if you don't you know if they don't give you something mm. In that case, it's the filmmakers not meeting the audience halfway. Yeah, exactly. See, conversely, you mentioned Goodfellas before. Pesci's character is so reprehensible. Yeah. And such a terrible person. Yeah. And so hair trigger. But he's funny. And so we kind of forgive him because yeah, he's, yeah. because he's, you know, it's like he has this great delivery and he has this great sort of sense of humour. And maybe that's our way in with him. Well, well, he has an endearing quality of some sort. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll put endearing in inverted commas. But yeah, <laughs> well, he's yeah. yeah I, I guess you have Magnetic to say that. quality. Yeah, yeah, or human. You know, there has to be something just real or human about. Well, I think comedy is a big one, but um, uh, former Hyphenates guest John Richards has a theory that if you want us to like somebody, show them being good at their job, and I. I think he's actually quite right about that. I think there are a lot of people who, if you show them being competent and having small victories, I think that plays a big part in whether we like them or not. Do you think that's necessarily in their job, though? Like, or whether it's just in their, like, whether they can do that and be crap at their job but have victories in their personal lives? Do you think that has the same effect? Maybe. I don't know why I'm, I'm going to harp on about This Is 40 so much, but again, both of those characters are terrible at their jobs. Mm. They're shown to be terrible at their jobs. And I think if, if. What sort of jobs do they have, though? Because, I mean, you know. Um, Owning you know, a fashion store and running a record label. I mean, they're not really sort of high-stakes jobs. Like, I think that theory sort of works if you've got a character um, who's a doctor and you mm. see them performing surgery and saving someone's life. Mm. Like, great. Or a lawyer who's um, defending someone, winning a case. Or I, I don't know whether... I, no, I think it's personal <laughs> stakes. I think, I mean, especially because that, that film is about we have financial difficulties and it's hard to feel sympathy for them because they have these amazing jobs and suck at them. But um, I liked Seth Rogen in the film for the first time uh, recently, almost the first time. It was, um, of all things, The Guilt Trip, a film I didn't think I would like at all and I actually enjoyed it. 
And one of the things is that Seth Rogen is, is shown to be, you know, he's struggling and he's trying to succeed and he's shown to be good at his job. And I, I think I think John's onto something. I think that does play a part in, in likability. See, I don't know. See, I, like, I look at something like High Fidelity. Hmm. He's not really much good at anything. But, you know, he's like he... He, the other guy's kind of, you know, I mean, he kind of runs the store as such as it is. But that's him being funny. And that comes back. I think it's. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the other Because, yeah, other he's not good at relationships. He's not good at his job. He's not really good at anything. But mm. he's funny and relatable. You heard it here first. John Cusack and Joe Pesci basically playing the same characters in Goodfellas <laughs> and High Fidelity. <laughs> what a breakthrough. What am I funny? Do I look like a fucking clown to you? <laughs> All right, Victoria, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Alexander Payne. Very good. A.K.A. Alexander Papadopoulos. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, It's got some giant... Yeah. We've learned something already. Mm. There you go. Mm. So why have you picked him? Uh, well, I was trying to pinpoint this in my mind on the way here. And I think it's because... Um, just of the simple but beautifully complex human relationships um, that he he writes about. All these films uh, have such strong characters and and they're so human and they're flawed and they're all interesting. And as a writer, I love writing character-driven stuff. Um, so I think that's, yeah, really why I'm attracted to all of his, his films. Fantastic. So what was your first, when did you first discover? I think it was election mm-hmm. um, because I think I am a bit of a Tracy flick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I really related to that character and that's really why I love that film so much um, because I, you know, desperately did want to be school president or school mm. captain as we call it here and I was really upset when I got vice captain and the girl who got school captain her brother had just died of leukemia and it's really awful but I will admit it at the time I thought in my head that's just because her brother died <laughs> oh, I've, wow. I've never I've never admitted that out loud um but I I, you know, we've all had those awful thoughts. It's a confessional here. And, and, <laughs> and I'm glad actually, you shared. It's the type of thing that you would see in an Alexander Payne film. Absolutely. Like somebody yeah. stating that and saying, this is why I think that happened. Absolutely. Tracy Flick could have uh, had exactly the same sort of thing happen to her. <laughs> that's, man, you, that's the thing. You want to talk about relate, relatable versus likeable. Mm. Payne's the poster child for that stuff because mm. almost every lead character in his films has a horrible moment somewhere yeah. and is and you're often in their head as well you're often on the ride with them but it's just they're they're, they're so painfully real as you say and 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 flawed in a way we all recognize that you just can't help but but get on board well it's fascinating to see where he, he started from like his first sort of the pre-citizen ruth stuff he did he did um a film called Carmen, a short in 1985. He did a short called The Passion of Martin in 1991. And he did two segments of an anthology called Inside Out in 91 and 92, which was Playboy trying to do a sort of Tales from the Crypt Twilight Zone thing, but with erotica instead of horror or science fiction. <laughs> yeah, now I was, I never uh, found those, mm. um, but I was fascinated by that. <laughs> well, he's, 
Well, yeah. actually, one of the inside outs was his first collaboration with Jim Taylor, his mm. regular co-writer. It's great because he kind of subverts the whole idea of uh, of these erotic tales. Like the first one is just a complete parody of what you know. I think Playboy was trying to do. It was it's just a single shot, and it's just a, a complete mockery of it. And um, the second one was not very erotic at all. <laughs> so he seemed to, but they were all they all sort of kept to the rules of what. And he did the same thing again in two thousand and six in Paris Jatem. He did a short. Uh, that seemed like a deliberate subversion of the anthology's premise, even though he sort of stuck to the rules and he seemed to understand the point of it all. But yeah. Now, was his short the one with uh, Margot Martindale, the older lady in Paris by herself, yeah. talking about all the... Infractioning, infractured French, yes. sorry, talking about... That was lovely. Yeah, it was, it was, was a, a really lovely short. short. Yeah. 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 Uh, I really liked The Passion of Martin. Yeah, yeah, his second short. It was okay, well, okay, his those two shorts that he started out with, Carmen was sort of a dialogue free film set to Bizet's opera, um, about a dolt, I guess, working at a service station. Let's just say mentally challenged, intellectually challenged. Yeah, let's uh, go with that. And clerk. um The Passion of Martin was a one hour film about uh, a man completely obsessed with a woman and we're just completely inside his head for the whole thing. And there's such strong unique films that you can really tell like why he was able to get the attention he did like right off the bat and they and they both have a really strong sense of place as well like um sort of that sort of roadhouse style mm. setting of, of of Carmen that feels like the sort of Omaha Nebraska sort of um mm. milieu of his early films or the kind of the big city New York style Passion of Martin. Mm. I, I wasn't as into Carmen. I don't know. It was. It, it's, it's very broad. Yeah. yeah. And it was kind of like, oh, should we really be laughing so much at this guy? Mm. I don't know. Whereas, whereas Passion of Martin, I really, um, yeah, I liked um, the character. He's quite an extreme guy, and he's he's has his idea of art is to he's basically like pe- proto paparazzi in a way it, like he would just go up to people in the street and begin conversations with them and then threaten to kill them and do and outline all the horrible things he'd do to them and then when they ran off looking terrified he'd take a photo of them <laughs> and then he has a gallery devoted to this mm. i didn't now i have to admit i didn't get to watch his his short films do I get a slap on the wrist? No, no, but we can uh, we can give you those along with the Hell is for Hyphen It's board game afterwards. <laughs> um, Depending but... on how well you do. If you win, then you get the board game. Um, well, okay, well, his first feature film in 1996 was Citizen Ruth. And there was a term that came into my head watching it that I think sort of sums up his whole style, which is bleak whimsy. Oh, I don't know whether I'd go the oh whimsy whimsy screams danger to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whimsy oh, screams. I don't I don't I sort of see where you're going with the whimsy, but yeah, I I, I think he's more grounded than that. Whimsy to me suggests something sort of a bit less a bit silly. A bit silly. And yeah. I I don't know, I I loved this film so much. Yeah. Mm. It was great actually seeing Laura Dern too because she's uh if you've seen enlightened which is her um new hbo show and Mm. in enlightened she plays a a woman who's sort of basically on the brink of a nervous breakdown highly neurotic and and it was lovely sort of seeing her character in citizen ruth who who also has this quite you know um 
hyperactive, sort mm. of slightly loose, crazy, um, you know, elements to her. But I, I, and I think in all these films, and you sort of see it here, he's, he, there's sort of similar themes and, and here there's obviously a strong theme of, of morality and, um, and questioning that. And it's so black. So sort of dark. I found this film actually a lot darker than some of his his. Mm. I mean, there's always a bit of sort of black comedy to absolutely to all, all his films, but uh, you know Laura Dern's character playing this drug addict and the scenes. You know, she's addicted to the the to sniffing, screaming, yeah, yeah, mm. and those scenes are actually really hard to watch. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite. It's presented very matter of factly and not in in a comedic way at all, which is great. I I love how even handed it is. Like it really does take the piss out of both pro life pro lifers and pro choices, but without without and, creating a false equivalency, without saying, "Hey, everybody's crazy. I don't have to take a position." Yeah, exactly. He manages. It's so deft the way he walks that line. Absolutely. And the thing I noticed that with this film, and it keep popping up through later films, is how one how classy a filmmaker he is. Is such beautiful this movement of the camera and certain shots that just really kind of suggests already a guy that knows what he's doing right. sorry i just yeah, have to no. interject, interject there because I, I after because i've you know been going back and trying to re-watch as many of his films as possible and the thing that i thought was that it's so interesting how he's actually quite a daggy filmmaker <laughs> yeah. um and that you know he's He's, you know, like in, I know I'm jumping forward a bit here, but, you know, in Sideways, um, you know, within the first sort of 45 minutes, he loves the dissolves, the split screen, mm. there's like wipes and and, <laughs> yeah. and his, his filmmaking style, I think, is is quite sort of sometimes a bit old-fashioned and straight. But, but saying that, there's something also quite daring about that too because he doesn't, rely on any tricks mm. well, it's all about the story i think that's what i mean characters. by classy you know he's very i guess probably a classy as in classical you know i think mm. he's very as you say he's very old-fashioned he's very yeah it's always very sort of subtle push-ins and and dolly shots that you don't know so there's nothing flashy or pretentious about his style which i like but he's also the thing that would keep coming up again and again he's, he's got this great use of of highfalutin term alert mise-en-scene Mm. which is basically a fancy French way of saying backgrounds in mm. his scenes. He would – there's that great scene where Burt Reynolds, as the kind of the pro-life figurehead, arrives at the protest and starts walking along the line like a politician, shaking hands and kissing babies. And, but there's these portaloos in the background and, and an old guy just kind of stumbles out of one of them at one point and it just makes him look so ridiculous. And so much like a, a tin pot wannabe politician, yeah, yeah. and it just it just says everything about that character in that frame, and and there's there's things he does like that time and time and again, um, especially in election, yeah, yeah, because I mean yeah, that's the film that really put him on the map in '99, you know, and, and look, I have to admit it didn't hit me the first time. I couldn't quite see what it was. Then rewatching it for this it suddenly all opened up to me and I realised it wasn't just this small character drama. It was about, you know, all the... It was about the strata of society all in this microcosm of this, you know, high school election. Instantly there, there's that um, scene where you see uh, Tracy, uh, Tracy's affair start with that, mm. with the other teacher. Yeah. And he's sort of walking towards it and there's the kid, his kid's 
playthings in the corner of yeah, the room. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like, just little touches. And like moments, and the freeze frame, like the everything. merciless freeze frame yeah, on, on her. On On that <laughs> horrible... I mean, that's just... Because it's the way he sees her. Yeah. He sees her as ugly and distorted and stupid. Exactly. It's everyone laid bare, yeah. Um, I so love Matthew Broderick's character in this film. Mm. I think think to to a certain extent, I'm a little bit of a Mr. M. I'm someone that tries really hard to be a good person and good at my job, and I really hate habitual high achievers. (laughs) That makes me Chris Klein, doesn't it? (laughs) In this scenario. (laughs) But, but yeah... um, yeah, I got to say, I dug this film more this time than the first time I saw it mm. as well. I don't. Do, do, do you think it's saying a lot about the political process, or do you think that's just a just a by by way sort I, of? I wonder whether perhaps that wasn't such a big thing for me, but that might just not be. That might be because you know I'm not in America, and mm-hmm. you know I think it pointed to a lot of that sort of specific sort of American sort of politics. Yeah. I think it's um, using politics to, to talk about these characters and like this sort of person and that sort of person and how how people relate to high achievers and and it's that likability thing of is is the Chris Klein character more likable and is that why he does so well and mm-hmm. rather than having the talent, you know. Again, I just I was having a discussion with uh, with partner about this too and she was saying that everybody basically continues on except for possibly the Matthew Broderick character, everyone else kind of continues on the path that they're always on mm. after all of this stuff happens. Yeah, you yeah. know, Chris Klein still gets his scholarship. He still parties. He's still having a great time. He's still going to be the, the you know, the prom king. Mm. Reese, uh, Tracy is still going to have this massive career and be a, a, a lawyer and corridors of power. And, mm. and uh, the um, Tammy is going to find a girl she falls in love with and embrace being being a lesbian and you know and it's it's like nobody after all of this struggle everybody's kind of you know, this destiny which is really kind of interesting yeah he's only destroyed himself really mm. yeah there's actually oh there's actually a great quote about destiny um from the film that I I pulled out mm. uh, it's a Tracy uh, flick um, line and she says. None of this would have happened if Mr. McAllister hadn't meddled the way he did. He should have just accepted things as they are instead of trying to interfere with destiny. You see, you can't interfere with destiny. That's why it's destiny. And if you try to interfere, the same thing's just going to happen anyway and you'll just suffer. <laughs> oh, my God. Which is the, basically the key line of the film. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick up on <laughs> That's that. That's great. Yeah. So just going back to, because uh, I'm fixated on it, on his sort of style of filmmaking, the other thing I noticed <laughs> watching... From watching his his films again, the sort of choice of score that he's ha- he has in his films really hasn't changed since like Citizen Ruth. It's mm-hmm. it's so sort of a, a bit naff, really. At times, mm. it sounds like he's just gone to a royalty free sort of <laughs> it's a website. Bit 70s, isn't it, it is. It's very... like seventies television sort I, yeah. of sort of Marvin Hamlish. Yeah, style, yeah, you know, kind of, yeah, jaunty and kind of, dun, 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 you know, like a little bit sort of, mm. yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's sort of quite surprising in a way, but and usually that sort of music would really bother me, but but it, it does, it works in his films. Again, it's like you know, it's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need sort of, um, you know, a sort of perfect score, mm. you know, to help move the story along. Mm. It's just sort of there bubbling away to sort of, you know... I think uh, sometimes it's very good. I think his scores are occasionally quite subtle at um, 
illustrating the characters' deluded mental states, like what how they see the situation or what they think of themselves as this kind of on this very sort of, you know, kind of upbeat journey and they're in control of their destiny and they're really not. And also it begins, the election begins the whole, his whole thing with the, the protagonist as unreliable narrator yes. or at least the protagonist as self-deluded narrator and you get their perspective on things and then see what's actually happening. Well, that's something that really continues into 2002's About Schmidt because he really does do the, yeah, the unreliable narrator and he sometimes does it via literal narration, like in Passion of Martin. You've got, you know, his, in a monologue, in a lection, you've got all, you've got four characters, each who are pretty deluded. See, I don't think Chris Klein is deluded. I think he's absolutely honest. He's just like Perhaps, yeah. he's kind of or shucks about everything. He doesn't quite like, understand what's why no. people are doing he's things. He's sort of being strung along, yeah. know, rather than making lots of his own choices. It's, oh. it's kind of no surprise, I think. Like it's almost like the le- the least intelligent mm. about of them is the least self deluded. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting. Well, he has it a little bit in his Paris Jatem segment, mm. and in about Schmidt, the uh, the way Jack Nicholson talks to like write these completely inappropriate letters to his African foster child <laughs> is just I mean that, that that device alone slays me let alone the content right. it just every time dear Nadugu you know <laughs> but my god does it pay it off at the end though yeah, yeah and it's so um and you can just you can just see his struggle like you can just I don't know it's so touching I just he's such a sad guy mm. he is but you 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 know, through these, you know, he just wants to reach out, and uh, I don't. I could cry thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, that's <laughs> so the thing. It's He's such, such a. It's one of touching my, film. It's one of my favorite Jack Nicholson performances. Like it's top three to five Nicholson performances for me. I just I love how subtle he is. I love how broken he is. How lost he is. Yeah. Um, you know, it's he, a real character. It is. Yeah. He it, Nicholson completely disappears into this guy. It's almost like an aged version of Five Easy Pieces at times. Mm. I find, which is interesting, because there are so many visual allusions to The Shining of all things. Yes, I, did you know? I noticed one of I yeah, one that. or two of those. Because in there's in the bar, in the bathroom, there's a slow push in on an old photograph. It's really I don't know why he's pushing The Shining of all things, <laughs> but I'm sure some of it's on purpose. You got Jack. <laughs> yeah, that's and it's a weird choice, but anyway. And it's lovely how he can get a Hollywood legend, a Hollywood demigod, mm. and completely merge him into Planet Pain. Yeah, you know, I, I really, really like that. Like, and clever casting too, because you know, I suppose you're you're when you think of Jack Nicholson, you do think of such a strong, yeah, mm. sort of you yeah. know, cool. Guy who sits in the same seat every year at the Oscars, you know, and it's on Jennifer like Lawrence. And yeah, so and how weird it, does it see, see you with someone age appropriate? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, no, that's really disconcerting. It's weird, isn't it? Like you yeah. see it with a, with another the sixty something woman, and you're like, what? That's that's not right. It's just something in your brain that's so used to seeing Jack Nicholson, you know, in twenty year olds. Yeah. But that's the thing. He's yeah, very, he's, in, he's incre- incredible. I mean, the other his other great performances in as good as it gets. Mm. I think as well as sort of. You know similarities. Yeah, yeah. But in that one, he's so much more. I think on the Jack level, mm, like he's yeah, so much more true. extroverted and mm. bringing the Nicholson. Whereas this, yeah, he's Warren Schmidt. My absolute favorite of Payne's films is 2004 Sideways. I will never, never get sick of this film. It's there's something 
about it, which is like the subject matter is really appealing and the cast is really appealing. But uh, like for me, this is his most moving work, I think. It's funny because I've just been re-watching it and um, just absolutely loving it, mm. watching it again. I don't feel like I got so much... I mean, I, I, you know, I love all these films, but um, I feel like I'm getting a lot more out of it, um, you know, having another pass at it. Mm. And, and also having just watched The Descendants recently, what's really interesting about both The Descendants and Sideways is you really get the sense of Alexander Payne just... Like he has such confidence in just sort of settling in with the characters. Mm. Um, there's no rush, and mm. which is quite a brave thing for a filmmaker to do. It's not, you know, most of Sideways is just it's just conversations. Yeah. You, you know, it's it's actually quite a risky thing to do. They're just, you know, often just in different, lo you know, slightly different locations, having these sort of amazing one-on-one -on -one conversations. But there's something so 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 beautiful about about Paul Giamatti's character about how he is this sad, you know, middle-aged man with his interests, his very specific interests being forced out there into the world to to deal with it. It's very subtle, but there's something about it that is very familiar but we don't see on screen a lot. I feel the two characters of Sideways feel like Warren Schmidt split into. It's like Paul Giamatti is all the sad, broken stuff and is all too aware of it. Yeah. Is not, and Jack is all the self-delusion. Oh, Jack yeah, is yeah. just as bad. He's all the, all the, all the self-delusion of his character is kind of, but with none of the self-pitying. Mm. It's like he's gone completely the other way. Yeah, and it feels like the two of them combined would be Warren Schmidt or an, yeah, indeed an Alexander Payne character. And this is kind of looking at the two sides of the spectrum, uh, playing them off each other, which is kind of interesting. It's interesting, just going back to the unreliable narrator thing, is that it, such a deliberate use of voiceover in a lot of his early films um, that it, 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 it augments what we're watching. And I think one of the reasons when I first watched The Descendants, seven years later, 2011, he made The Descendants, and it really turned me off. The first viewing, I did not like it at all. I softened thinking about it, and then on the second viewing, I loved it. But that first time, it really turned me off, and I realised... It's probably the narration, which is completely redundant. It's descriptive. It doesn't reveal anything about character that the action doesn't. And it goes for a really long time. I have to say for the mm. first, like, um, ten minutes or whatever it was of The Descendants, that voiceover, it just didn't work in the way mm. that it did in his other films. Yep. And I think it's a really, like, it's a beautiful film mm. but yeah for, I was really worried <laughs> mm, <laughs> I was really yeah. really worried so for the first 10 minutes I was thinking when is this going to stop like you're telling me too much you could have mm. done this in a different way and yeah. it's not the unreliable narrator he's just telling you stuff that's happening that's yeah. right. seeing the same exactly. stuff there's no that, irony yeah. to it and that's why I think it turned me off at first whereas now I sort of like it despite <laughs> that you know I can sort of see the well he does get that. rid of it pretty quickly like it's he not does, something sort yeah. of persists. It's, as you say, it's like 10 minutes yeah. in or something. He finally ditches it. Yeah. it. He must inspire such a confidence in his actors as well to allow them to... It's like, okay, I don't have to be the star here. I don't have to do my thing. I, mm. can, I can completely be in your hands and immerse myself in your world. He treats the characters in such a gentle way in both The Descendants and Sideways. I thought there was going to be such greater friction between... Uh, him and the daughters, mm. uh, when really it wasn't about that at all. Mm. It was just about a family trying to cope with mm. a difficult situation. 
you know, he didn't need to set up these sort of, you know, sort of huge sort of fights or huge moments. It was enough just yeah. to sort of sit with them and 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 watch them just try to cope in a normal human mm. way. Mm. And for this guy to kind of decide that he's part of a family, you know, and to act accordingly. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, there's some really sweet stuff going on and, here. And from the title, like, down, down to the fact that they have inherited this land and don't feel they deserve it, I, mm. I love that there is a suggestion of these greater depths to these to what they're going through right at the second. There's this history there. There's so much history. Mm. And it's really, it's one of the things Payne does best. Even though my favourite film of his is basically just about the characters. There's, no, there's not a lot, there's no deeper societal mm. in thing going on. But whereas overall, I think that's the thing he does best. But there is something I noticed watching all of his films again in such quick succession is that he has a lot of sympathy for the well-meaning Dalt. So if you go from um, the, the lead in Carmen mm. to Chris Klein's Paul Metzer in Election to Dermot Mulroney's yes. Randall in About Schmidt to Nick Krause's Sid in The Descendants, they're basically the village idiots. And yet they're the ones that Payne loves the most. He has he gives them a free pass that none of the other characters it's get. Funny, isn't it? Because watching about Schmidt, you start thinking, you start thinking, even though you love Warren, you're mm. kind of like, gee, you're really being really hard on David Mulroney. He's a really nice guy. Like mm. he's an idiot, but he's he's always really sweet and he's always trying to do the right thing. And you're kind of like, you're kind of being a bit hard on him, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Normally in those films, you're like, yeah, that guy's an idiot. You're right lead character guy but in this yeah you're really kind of like and can soften up on the sun in Laura a bit yeah and actually one of the most beautiful moments in the descendants is when you know um sid's been sort of coming along with them for a while and and george clooney comes out in the middle of the night and has a chat to him and we find out that his his father had died a few mm. months ago and you you know your whole perception yeah. of him sort of is turned on its head and it's such a sweet beautiful moment yeah yeah, I do like that for a guy who is so, so many of his films that take place in Omaha, Nebraska, he's really sort of stuck a flag. I love it when a filmmaker sticks their flag in one part of the world mm. and they go, this is where I'm setting my films. And his next film that's coming out this year, later this year, is called Nebraska. <laughs> I love that he's just owning it now. He's been away too long. He's spent two years away from uh, two films away from Nebraska. He's going back. But oddly he's enough, staying. and this may change by the time the film comes out, he's not credited as a writer on it. It's the first one of his. I films. found that curious. Yeah. yeah. Well, although, but he obviously because he always works with other writers. Mm. So you know, I sort of thought, oh, maybe that's not his, you know, strong mm. suit necessarily. It's funny, although he's won two Academy oh, Awards for it. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty strong. And yeah, you did a draft okay, of Jurassic yeah. Park 3, need I remind you. And yeah. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, which we shouldn't be reminded of. But, yeah, it's amazing. He's only made five films. He's been nominated for five Oscars and won two. Mm. He's got an amazing strike rate. Mm, he does. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Oh, what's your favourite? What's your favourite film? Oh, of his? Oh, I mean, you know, I have such nostalgia for it. Election, just because I really, you know, if Reese Witherspoon wasn't around and I lived in Hollywood and <laughs> I, you know, yeah. somehow was known there, I would have loved to have played Tracy Flick. 
Although I also love Citizen Ruth. Mm. Obviously, I'm going for the ones. Can you see a pattern here? Female leads yeah. that maybe I would have loved to have played. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> the, the egotistical actress coming out of me. Um, no, but I, you know, I sound like I'm sitting on the, the fence, but I suppose the reason I picked him was because, you know, it's rare to find a filmmaker who's, whose films you consistently love. Mm. Awesome. Lovely. And we will see the rest of you next month. Pick Flick. Pick Flick.